Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code WouldThatBeGood for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to Patreon.com CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at purentgeo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the 409th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your manga-loving host Mason, but I'm joined by two anime lovers, with Spy Family from Abe and Fire Force from Spencer. Abe, we were just talking about Spy X Family before we started here. Notice how I used both, that way I cover from the weebs, they can't get me no matter what. That's just so good, right? Like, if someone's looking for a show to watch, it's the thing they gotta pick yeah. up. Best thing of the season right now, I think. Like, it, it, it's really, really good. Spencer, have you I seen Spy Family? Good things. I do know that Fire Force is still supposed to somehow come out this this year, which is mind-boggling, because it wasn't renewed until March, and I don't think the manga's finished, and this is the last season, because it will end with the manga. That's part final season <laughs> life, Spencer. Yeah, you're going to have an Attack on Titan situation where it's 2024 when you finally oh, see it. Oh, man. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, you know, manga's great, and it's important to pick out good manga and anime to watch. But what's more important than that, of course, is picking your deck for a tournament. And that's really what we're going to be covering today. But first, we do need to be doing Always Improving, and it's the main point of the show. I will lead things off this week. Uh, my Always Improving moment comes from actually picking a deck and looking into stuff so you know if you've been around magic recently ledger shredder is the talk of the town you can't get away from it it's kind of the card people are playing it in every format now um it's all over the place and i've seen it in some different spots and i've seen some stuff with ledger shredder i was like oh this is cool and i really think this card is good at being grease for a deck and making the deck function but i don't think it's enough to like make a deck into a deck that wasn't before and when i was thinking about it I was like, well, I really like this Grease Fang stuff, but I want to play it more tempo combo-y. So it's kind of like almost inverter-esque where I can play like a, an interactive game or I can like combo you on turn three. And that's what I kind of built and I've been playing it in Pioneer and it's like good, but not great. But it was cool to kind of like try to approach like how do I solve this problem, build a deck towards that and just do that sort of thing. And that was probably a pretty moment was going back into a well of a strategy I've written off, because I do not think the Grease Fang deck currently in like a Mardu shell and like that is actually good. And I had kind of written off the Esper before, but this card is enough to get me reinterested in the archetype. And I think there is something to the Esper for what it's worth, so not writing something off. I definitely think that when it comes to Ledger Shredder, because it's a card that has been kind of a hit from the set that we haven't talked about much, if you're out there thinking, how do I make them ledges shred? Make sure your proactive deck that wants to be casting spells on their turn. That's like the best thing about the card is that when you can cast it and another thing in the same turn, get the immediate trigger. Decks with Thoughtseize especially super good for that. So I'm not surprised at the Esper, Esper deck. Are you playing Tainted Indulgence in that? Or are you more of a Faithful Mending kind of? So I have both. And I want to cut a little bit. I, I tried putting four and four of each on my first league. And I think I want to play four Mending three indulgence because it's really hard for me to get indulgence to not just be mending without flashback even though it's a little easier on my mana 
actually just having so much of that allows me to like move through and find the right stuff. And I, I totally agree, by the way, like Ledger Shredder, when you can like function off like four-ish lands and you just are double spelling all the time and never having extra lands laying around or like turning these situational spells into power so you can actually clock them quicker. Card's just great. It's really strong. Abe, how have you always improved this week? Uh, yeah, so this week was uh, kind of a test. With the arena open this weekend that was sealed, I wound up telling myself I only play like one bullet in really much time on Saturday or Sunday, but I did want to play because I do, I have put a lot of time in a limited format and I do enjoy it uh, a decent bit. Especially sealed is just always a fun puzzle. And I have also, uh, as I talked about last week, kind of focused a little bit more on my technical play, making sure that I'm making the best plays I can, playing around all the things I can. I've been playing a lot of uh, Slay the Spire to accommodate that, really focusing as that game gets more and more difficult uh, for people who are familiar with it as like um, an ascension system where the game gets harder and harder. You kind of replay it as this deck building game. So there's this aspect of, you know, really pushing yourself as things get harder to be making all of the correct decisions, not only in the way that you're crafting your deck with these cards that you can get access to, but also with the way you're sequencing all of your cards when you're doing a fight or whatever. So doing a lot of that because it was really enjoyable and also felt like really good practice for making sure I was sequencing everything properly and thinking everything through in Magic. And on day one of the Arena Open, I had a match where I I was like 4-0 at the time and I just didn't play my fourth land before casting before combat where I knew I was going to cast a combat trick that was going to like swing the game in my favor, close the door on things, and uh, my opponent played the only thing that punishes me, which was Make Disappear, copied, and I was just really frustrated by it, but I, like, I wound up going 6-3 and three on that on that run. I was like, man, if I had just not, if I had actually taken the time like I told myself I would, I would have absolutely crushed. My deck was not very good, but I was making it work with just good deck building, understanding what the format was about, did all these things right, and this one thing wrong. So I fired another bullet, and uh, wound up making day two with that one, where I had a very similar situation where there were some amount of counter spells and you know various combat tricks I was able to suss out and actually devote myself to playing around and invalidating for my opponent rather than enabling them the way that I did to, to lose that other match. And it just felt good to see that kind of continued return on spending this time focusing on the little things. I kind of like it when uh, all the little stuff adds and pays off. It's the tedious part of magic, but it's so important. Yeah, scrapping for it all is always really good. Uh, how about you, Spencer? Mine is uh, non-magic related, but magic related. It came from a decision that I made last week to kind of, you know, finally pull the trigger and, and starting to get things changed for my help. I found out that I have some high cholesterol problems and I'm trying to make some adjustments in my life. And so part of that is uh, behind me, I typically have a bar full of alcohol. The only thing on this bar now is a, uh, you know, a tap jug of water. You know, I also started going back to my accounting macros and playing Greenfield Adventure on um, my switch downstairs. Part of the things that I've been trying to work on a lot over the last year have been my mental health. And I think that, you know, the closer I get to having that under control, the more that I'm going to need my physical health to catch up because eventually like my physical health will health will drag down uh, my mental health. And so, you know, got to play some ring fit uh, yesterday. I plan on playing more ring fit tomorrow as well as just kind of changing my diet. Uh, and it's, it's been good. You know, I'm only on, you know, day, day three really of some of these changes, but you know, even just developing small little habits 
for long-term success is really important. There was a podcast that I was listening to that talked about this person who didn't even go into the gym. She just drove to the gym every day for a week before she signed up to develop the habit of just driving to the gym. So, you know, I decided, like, I'm just going to track my food. Like, even if I don't meet my macro goals, I'm just going to track it anyway. Uh, and it's been good, so. Forming good habits is uh, really powerful. It's kind of a, a sick story about just, she was like, yeah, I probably won't be able to do this if I don't make it a habit already. So I just got to drive to the gym beforehand. Kind of cool. Getting that first step and getting your feet wet into, like, a new goal like that, especially when it comes to, like, a big change. can Easing yourself into it's really important. I'm glad that's something that you're, you're doing, Spencer. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash ccmtg. You get some perks of that, like get a patron question, which we do at the end of the show. But you also get a Patreon shout out at the start of the show, like our boy Kyle Riker, who signed up. Thank you so much, Kyle. Nice to have you in the patron discord. And uh, well, hopefully you do pretty wealthy energy this weekend. But we also need to do some housekeeping. Uh, we have some pretty big announcements. And Spencer, do you want to take this by the reins? I'm kind of I'm kind of sad. <laughs> about this one but i think that it is the the right time we are going to be mutually ending our relationship with oasis games at the end of may and as part of that we will not be running the 1k anymore we will still be running quarterly events Um, we have a new sponsor yet to be announced that we'll be sponsoring those but we won't we won't be working with oasis after this month and because of that, it didn't make sense to give out a bunch of store credit to a place that we weren't going to be in a business relationship with anymore. I still love Oasis. It's still one of my favorite places. I certainly hope there's no hard feelings on Oasis' side. I know there's no hard feelings on my side. Like, uh, I got to speak to the owner last week, and we had a real heart-to-heart. And I just I felt like this was the right time, and he agreed, and we're going to part ways. But I just can't believe that uh, you know we had a sponsor you know it'll it'll be 400 and it might be it might literally be 400 episodes by the time that the that relationship ends and something that not a lot of podcasts experience i can't think of a podcast in magic that had a sponsor single sponsor for that long i love them and i appreciate them to the patrons who are patrons of ten dollars or more reach out to me we'll figure something out we already have kind of talked to mason and i already talked a little bit about like some ideas but we definitely want to still do something for those people it just won't be that 1k so stay tuned for the new sponsor the announcement of the next event things like that we'll get more into that as we get to that but we need to get into our main topic today and that's picking your rcq deck this topic is for all things when it comes to magic and we're going to touch on stuff that's more than just rcqs but there is something a little bit different about picking a deck you know for a qualifier event that's a lot smaller than maybe something like an SCG or a Grand Prix. And it's something that is kind of, I feel like, not talked about enough. Abe, do you feel similarly where people kind of feel like it's just one-to-one? You know, especially as the last few years, Magic's become more and more digital. People kind of view things really as like, oh, there's just one correct answer without considering the problem in front of them uh, when it comes to the metagame they're walking into what they're going to play against, what they need to worry about. And so it can be really important. There's a big edge to be gained always in deck building, but especially for deck building for the metagame, you're expecting more than just the metagame that exists on Magic Online or, you know, that people talk about. Spencer, when we talk about this and we talk about, like, what's different, what's that, 
what can you give like an example listener of like why something might be better at like let's say a 40 person tournament compared to a 4000 person tournament can i pitch in on the last question though because oh yeah for sure one of the things that can be thought about abe actually brought up something that i had not thought about that has changed in magic uh that might start changing back for what it's worth we went from this area where like 5-0 in a league was pretty hard on mtgo for a long time right like not like super difficult like we all did it but like congrats on the 5-0 right a lot of people just assumed that anybody in ladder stopped mattering but also that the decks in ladder were important it was a really weird dichotomy of opinions about this thing I don't think that like a ladder deck equated to a good SCG online deck or a good any of those online series that happened all the time, right? In fact, we actually saw that happen, right? When there were those SCG events, the ladder did actually not reflect what did well, even though those were only like 40 to 100 people events, right? While this topic won't apply just to RCQs, I think that it kind of applies to like that qualifier gpt ptq 1k size event that is different and to go into the question that you were asking mason which is like what makes a deck stronger or weaker in these situations i think it's because you're able to tackle different problems in those spaces there's this really cool guy his name is shmation schmark he talks about no bad decks i mean mason you've heard from that guy before like how does he say it uh only reasonable decks only reasonable decks and one of the things that I think that ends up happening a lot is somebody will see that some deck in wherever, I don't want to insult somebody's hometown, won a PTQ. Salt Lake City, Utah, West Valley, Utah, team or mid-range by this dork wins the event, right? And so... Big Nucks. Yeah, Big Nucks. And so people just assume they either discredit that event or then they overvalue this thing, right? And I think that... The things that make a deck strong in a 40 to like, you don't know, like 150, 200 person event, or maybe not that big. I think that the space of PTQs are, you're all coming for the same reason, right? So at RCQ, right, you're all coming to try and go to the regional championship. That is not the reason everybody shows up to an SCG. That is not the reason everybody shows up to a Grand Prix. And also, you don't have this day one, day two winner metagame split. And there's like some real differences between six to seven or I don't know, eight rounds in a top eight to like, you know, 14 rounds plus top eight. They're just different things. And the type of decks that are good in those situations can vary. Like I think glass cannon decks are a really good example of something that actually can be really good in like a six, six round plus top eight event or, or things like that. Whereas I don't, I personally don't think that they're as good in something like, a, you know, a GP. When you have less rounds, you know, your, like, sample size is much smaller. So it kind of goes back to, like, the button-clicking thing we talked about last week on the show, where I was like, hey, if I recommend you a deck, it's like you're going to play that deck, like, you know, I expect 100 times or whatever. And if that's the case, I want to give you a deck that's reasonable 100 times. You know, I don't want to give you something that's, like, a metagame deck for a weekend. Those decks sometimes still do well, despite, you know, all the odds or whatever, and there's, like, a bunch of factors there. But, like, if you play let's let's say 14 rounds right and then you know you play top eight whatever that's 17 rounds of magic for winning a tournament versus like you play a local rcq it's six rounds and three rounds for top eight right the difference between making top eight of that rcq is the same as qualifying for day two of that grand prix and 
how many people do you know have had like a great day one of a Grand Prix and then bomb day two? And or how many decks have you know seen on the like back when they did coverage where it was like, oh, and we've got the Sliver Human Wizard Tribal deck at eight and zero playing for undefeated, and it's like. You didn't hear about them in day two because they had to keep playing magic. But like they can win something like, you know, these RCQs. And uh that is something to like keep in mind. And also like it informs like deck selection and stuff like that and things you should be worried about. Willie Adel actually had like a really interesting take on how to pick a deck at one point that I really liked. Where he talked about like the the first thing that he's going to do for any event he goes to, he's gonna make sure he, his deck can beat aggro decks. What's funny is I think that that question, Mark, is actually good for both things, right? But then once you get to the, like, some of his next steps were really interesting. So one of the things that was not on the list is I have to be able to, like, beat blue-white control or whatever. Whereas, like, you'll, one of the things that ends up happening at, like, at least in my opinion, like, PTQ-level events or these, these now regional championship qualifiers, RCQs for what it's worth, and yes, we will call them that on the show. So leave a comment with your hate that we didn't call them PPTQs to drive up our engagement. That'd be helpful. Those events, people bring so many like negates and duresses and like anything that they can do to not lose to the card cancel. And so you need to have have that information in your pocket going into your RCQ. You need to know that like, dude, you're going to play against this type of interaction a lot of times. Abe, I have a question for you. This is something that I, you know, I think you and I have talked about a little bit in the past, maybe on the show, maybe not, but about the the old 15th cyborg card and being something that uh, kind of a pick your poison and you just don't want to lose to something. That's something that I feel like for listeners when it comes to picking an RCQ deck is much more saleable. You're going to play less rounds, right? You're going to see less stuff. Uh, and then just like having something that like maybe it's going to pop up that's like a bad matchup or a matchup you don't like and then having a cyborg card for it to help swing that matchup. Is that something that you kind of like and think about more when you're doing these smaller events? I think like probably the best example of this I remember, you know, it really depends on where you're picking that and what and what the reason is, right? Like the story that I always remember when I think about doing this is Dylan Donegan at, it was either like some local 5K or like an SCG Regionals, co-host of the MTG Grindcast, Lee, he always plays wacky artifact decks. And Dylan was playing Grix's Shadow. And he was just like, you know, I took stock Grix's shadow and I picked the matchups where I can afford to lose points. And I just shoved in some stuff to make sure I could beat a random wacky artifact deck because I know that one of the best players in my area who's going to be at this event is going to be playing that strategy. And it kind of comes into um, the stuff we talked about on uh, the episode about like building your character sheet for the deck that you're building and, and the deck you're playing for the event is think about the quote-unquote you know the monsters the end bosses the people you're going to play against think about the things that you're worried about people bringing what is it that you expect the players that you're going to have to beat because you have to win these tournaments the people you have to beat to get first place and thinking about where it is that you need to allot those points that you have available to yourself flexibility wise to win the event like the same reason why i personally shy away from glass cannon strategies in events like that um where, where first place is the only thing that matters right is because you can make your way into top eight pretty well. You know, you, it works five times, doesn't work one time. Okay, you make it. But then you have to work three times in a row, and that's almost as hard as it working like four or five times out of six. That's actually a really good point. Because I was thinking a lot of this is like the type of deck that I would bring to an RCQ is similar to the type of deck that I would play at like a Magic Online challenge. 
But that's that might not be true. I think it really depends on your region a lot. My region's always been really saturated with these kind of events. We have a lot of LGSs that can run these things and do run them pretty well. So my average RCQ is usually 30-ish people. Like a big one is like is 60-ish, but they're always like five or six rounds, more like your local one or two K. And for those, you know, knowing what the people who are making the rounds every week and, and showing up and what they're playing and kind of adapting for them is a much smarter thing to do than being like, oh, well, did you see that Living End won the challenge again? So now I need to have this extra graveyard hate. It's like, if no one plays Living End around you, like it's the case when I play my local Modern 1Ks, there's like, I can count on one hand the amount of Living End and four color players combined, but it takes me two hands to count all of the Hammer Time and Merc Tide that I play against. So that's why I play Hammer Time all the time locally, right? Is because I know that I'm this much more likely than this to play against the matchups that are good. Knowing what you're coming in against and trying to ascertain that information, that becomes really important in kind of making those those decisions. Because, But you have to know, you know, you shouldn't be guessing. Yeah, we've talked about this. I think Michael Hinderocker was the first one that brought this up on the podcast. At some point, the ant, the conclusion that you come to isn't as important as the reason that you have for it. So Abe just gave the literal reason that I'm okay playing a glass cannon, that I would be more okay playing a glass cannon deck at these style of events than at a Grand Prix. But he came to a different conclusion than me. And I think it really good. Like, I also have, like, I'm going to have 22 RCQs probably in my area. So, like, to me, if I play the same glass cannon deck at 22 RCQs, the odds are fine. Like, it's it's whatever. It's funny that we came to different conclusions in similar spaces. And I think that the truth is that the answer we came to wasn't as important as going through the thought exercise. Deck selection, especially as players, you know, you got to know what's the best thing for you, right? It's like why I wouldn't show up playing, uh, you know, something like Dredge or like Tron every weekend is because I'm afraid of those situations where, you know, I'm... Sure, I make top eight every time, but then I play against the person who has the extra spreading season, has the blood wounds, has the hate for my strategy. They brought the extra rest in pieces. They brought the stony silences or whatever it is. When I'm trying to, you know, only win the event, that's the that's the thing that really matters to me is like it's too easy for that to happen. But conversely, you know, maybe I should be thinking of it as one week these people aren't going to be expecting it. And they're going to be like, they're not going to have that hate and I'm going to get a free walk, free walk through. It really... It's always how you look at it. So it's funny about all this because y'all didn't know about this. I hadn't, I haven't talked about it on the show, but my LGS does this thing where they, for two months, track everyone's record in a modern, and then the top sixteen players when it comes to finishes by match points get invited to an invite only, win a box of like Modern Horizons, and like win some other stuff tournament. And I'm playing it this Saturday, and because it matters with seeding two to incentivize you to play more, you win more matches, you get a higher play draw. I know who my opponent is in round one. And in theory, I know what, what my one of two opponents will be in round two, right? Like, assuming I win or lose, I kind of have all of the information available to me pretty readily. And it's kind of like, okay, I haven't lost a match of Modern since February playing Money Pile at my store. And everyone knows I play Money Pile every week. And I have access to all the, bur- I have the burn deck right here. I can come in with the burn deck. And I know the guy who I'm playing round one plays Murktide. He's very good. I've seen him in a Murktide Discord saying, can I play four subtleties in my deck if I know I'm playing four color round one, right? And it's like, okay, do I take this sort of risk and do this sort of thing versus like the tried and true faithful? And this is kind of like a microcosm, hyper extreme example of like the RCQ thing and uh, the kind of philosophy that these two are talking about and how different they are, you know? And it comes down to like, what do you think is best? Like for me, typically like to weigh in on like the RCQ PPTQ style thing. 
I try to pick the most reasonable deck that I think I have for the weekend and then play it and make sure that I just have like good plans or whatever. And that typically ends up with me playing some sort of mid-ranging strategy. But there have been times where I've played aggro decks. Like I played Bardu Vehicles, uh, one of my first PPTQ playing that versus a deck like Team Energy, which I played like most of the time when it was legal. I feel like that if I had to choose one, I kind of fall in the camp of Abe where I'm like, I know that I can like probably make it top eight. And then that point, it's just about kind of like what Spencer said too. It's just about like playing so many tournaments to make sure that like I get my chance to spike it. But I see it almost like the same thing, but with reasonable is a bad word to say for this situation, but like fair decks, quote unquote, because like, oh, well, I always put myself in a position to top eight. And then it's just about winning three matches. If that's all I have to do, that's fine. Where if I play the glass cannon deck, maybe... You know, maybe I'm supposed to top eight a majority of the time because, like, you know, I'm the better player, quote unquote, playing the like the good glass candy deck. But I might run into someone who's just like, yeah, I hate loving end. And I've brought a bunch of chalices, a bunch of meddling mages, and your day is ruined. Have fun. You know, I played humans because I heard the living end matchup's good. And it's like, well, there's me and one other person playing living end. So have fun beating Fury. And like, that's a thing that for me is really frustrating. And I find very taxing about those decks if they're not overwhelmingly good. And that effect is kind of why people like have this uh this feeling that a lot of players who uh especially players who are like you know some of the better players in like a region or in a store they kind of gravitate towards more controlling or mid-rangey decks right decks that are very fair because they feel like they have more of that that agency right you know if, if like i wind up playing a mid-range mirror three times in my top eight then like maybe i could have maneuvered better i could have played better because then it, it's kind of like even footing whereas if i play this combo deck that's kind of trying to do one specific thing that's more easily targeted then i'm kind of rolling the dice instead of putting the game in my hands when really like i think it's important to you know because there are people of all play styles that both are really valid approaches and i know plenty of people who've had tons of success knowing how to do those combo decks really well and like understanding how to play through those things and like they win more events than me sometimes because they just are willing to take those risks when i'm not spencer how much do you think risk taking matters in smaller events and you know i want to kind of segue this into how we pick a decks for this event so if you can like tail in into that i'm very curious because that is something that i think is a very interesting thing and you've kind of shown that you're on the other camp to make it extreme you know what i mean <laughs> even though i don't think we're that different well like you were saying you were more willing to play mean? a glass cannon deck and abe and i were say- yeah 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 oh yeah, yeah so so it's funny because when i talk about glass cannon i actually am talking about like one of the decks that like abe mentioned like i'm more willing to play like tron but like not a deck like i'm not about to bust out like not gonna bring out uh, neoform <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna bust out neoform that's actually a really good example of a deck that i would literally just never play that's what i think of. Uh, so I, I think of like when noda versus arc like but like that's like in my head like to use like a modern example oh yeah i would be much more like i'd be willing to play either of those style of decks for me it, the risk comes down to like the acceptable risk that, that you're willing to take I think that the character sheet, uh, first of all, thank you so much for using my magic theory on this podcast. I really appreciated it. But I think it really does come down to like where you're putting your skill points. And like, if you are one of the better players in your region, it's funny that we talked about like they start to gravitate towards those mid-range and control decks, right? And I think that's been true about me a lot. I'd actually like to be more aggressively mid-range slanted, and here's the reasons why. Or I might go completely off the rails because I don't think that they're prepared for this thing. It has to come from a place of process rather than a place of 
just because it's Mimi? I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, we talked about how having the reason and going from the reason is important. And I think that once you become one of the better players in your region, it's easier to start to connect the dots and make those type of decisions. Because otherwise, you're one of the people in chat said, well, what if you're just guessing? It's like, well, then you're not doing what we're saying. Like, if you're just guessing, then you should probably go about... The other thing I think that's key that we're missing in this part is one of the things that's always true at these events is that the best deck is still going to be some percentage of just good. You can just do that. You can just play the best deck. And there's going to be some percentage of players that will do that, and that is okay. What's going to happen, though, is it won't be the percentage that you see on ladder. And understanding both that from a card availability perspective, from the fact that these are humans that don't, that aren't just trying to get a badge on a client and that are trying to win an event and are going to make decisions accordingly, means that you have to calculate what your risk is that you're willing to accept. How many times have I registered the card Scape Shift where people were like, it's not good? It's like, you know, my PPTQs I won with Scape Shift? All of them I played. Like, just actually all of them. Even though people know I'm going to be playing Scape Shift, I think that it's the deck that, one, I'm going to pilot the best. I think it's the deck that puts a question on my the metagame. Like, I don't think it's easy for them to prepare for me and for somebody else. Same reason I liked Tron for a couple of weeks here in Modern. I was like, I think people have forgotten that Tron exists. I wasn't the only person that had that idea. I think, wasn't it Kenji top-aided with 73 of the 75 that I played in that same challenge? Like, it is about the process. And if you don't have one and you're just guessing, then just guess with a good deck, I guess. All that magic is a lot of the time and a lot of what we talk about on the show is about just practicing good habits over and over and over and over again so that you are able to do things right and learn and improve and, like, get to a place eventually. You could argue that if you don't know what is, like, the best stuff or whatever, and you, like, look at what you see online and these results, and you're, like, kind of guessing, right? Like, you're not sure, but you're like, okay, I think this is it. That is much different than a guess, which is like, yep, I'm infects the deck this week, you know, and that's my guess. Like, I that's think it's so going to be burn. I'm yeah. bringing my life game. <laughs> I think that there's a difference, though, between, like, guessing yeah, and educated guessing, right? I think though what we're talking about though, Mason, it, I think at some point it is some amount of guessing. But like, how are you not supposed to have some amount of guessing? Is my question oh, for you, Mason? Well, you, you just can't, right? Like, kind of like what Spencer said, people are gonna do the best thing they can to win. And since you're quickly mentioning card availability, but like, there are just going to be factors that are gonna stop people from like doing the thing that's optimal, or even the thing they want to do, right? Like, they're gonna have card availability issues, or like their cards didn't arrive in time, or they couldn't practice or whatever, blah, 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 blah. So there's just always all these things that come up uh, where, like, they get scared. They don't want to play this deck for whatever reason, you know. People are, are going to make actions, but you can't predict it. But all you can do is kind of make the most reasonable guess that you can't, the most reasonable choice, and not overdo things. I'd be like, well, I saw Living End won the challenge, so I'm going to make sure that I bring in, you know, three unlicensed hearse to my main deck. Dude, the number of people that thought <laughs> Matt was playing living end at the last 1k they're like oh there was only one living blend end player and he o2 dropped i was like are you talking about matt because he was not playing living end. hey what were you gonna say though about what spencer the question i think about this is something actually kind of revolutionized my process was something that it was in a 400 level class i took in college called introduction to game theory why it's very very relevant that class was a lot about you know just 
looking at logical structures and breaking them down and how things play out, making good strategic decisions based on the information you have. Something that obviously very easily applies to magic, and especially more than I thought to stuff like this when it comes to metagaming, is that when you have a complicated problem, one that's multiple steps to solve, you have to start breaking things down into chunks and looking at what are rationalizable strategies. And it's called rationalizable strategies because you look at it and it's the thing that makes the most sense for someone to be doing. And with that, you can establish a belief, which then influence, it gives you the permission to start striking things out that are not going to happen because, you know, in the way that you're constructing this logically, you know that they won't do this. So now you can do this other thing. And so, you know, when it comes to making a good deck choice in magic and these events are, you know, making sure your process makes sense, you should be trying to make sure that your strategies are based on beliefs that are rationalizable, right? Like if I know, if my belief is that this weekend, the graveyard decks are the best decks. So I'm going to take it one step further than that and try to get an advantage in this situation by playing more graveyard hate or playing a deck that's naturally good against those. When it comes to making sure you have a good process, you should make sure that at the core of it, your belief is something that you believe is true and is something that you can build on, right? Overall, that's like, that's the way I think about it because it was the way that really opened my eyes to it in a way that I could speak it into existence more than I already had internalized it. Um, and I hope that's that's helpful to you guys. I think I think it's like really perfect. I do too. I think that it goes back to the point that we made earlier about Grand Prix and like those SCG events, right? There's going to be some number of people that are going to register five color slivers. But that's not a reasonable thing for them to do. And once you get to day two, so it's like the same problem, but has different segments. Like you talked about segmenting it, right? I've talked about this on the podcast, obviously, because I think the podcast was going when it happened. We had five players register a deck for a, a PTQ. We had a win percentage, I think, of like 85 between the five of us. Nobody top aided. People are like, how does that happen? And it's like, well, we got random losses that we didn't expect. It's probably the most players that I've ever had people play a deck of mine somebody lost them on a white knights i lost to like mardu sack and steel like that just these random things happened and it's like well did you make the wrong decision because you didn't win that's like no that's not how that works and i think too often the other thing that happens is people get so tied up in being afraid to make the wrong decision for something like a winner take all events like an rcq that they aren't willing to put in the in my opinion not that hard of work to just like think about the problem because they get they have this internal fear of failing well i think another thing can also be that those problems you know when it comes to a gp uh it's obviously a huge problem right you're kind of like the metagame is just what it is you can't really anticipate it you can't expect it it's such a big field but when you start to like think about you know a bigger trend like i talk about if there's a graveyard deck that's good or big mana is good that was something i'd write about a lot when it came to my writing on star city was looking at trends in the metagame and the kinds of decks people are, people are playing, and how you can see people adapting. Breaking it down into more useful chunks is really hard sometimes. Sometimes it's going to be overwhelming to be like, well, I know that a bunch of people are going to be playing these mid-range decks, but I don't know the right way to build my deck to kind of hedge against that. And that's where you can look at it and go, that's where I need to improve. I think that when it comes to deck selection, like uh, especially for these important events where you need to win the thing, keeping your eyes on the big trends of like everything because that's what everyone has kind of shared information about right everyone knows that living end or dredge is winning right so then everyone kind of comes together and they all independently decide well if dredge is doing well i need to make sure i have graveyard hate so then dredge becomes a bad choice you can extrapolate to all sorts of things so people are like oh the control decks are really good now 
the control decks are the better things, so now everyone's bringing their anti-control cards, their anti-aggro cards in the same vein. Let's kind of move into how do we go about picking a deck for an event like this, because we're kind of already talking about that, and that's something we really want to hit. And you're kind of talking about now, Abe, like breaking down this chunk of information, then figuring it out from there. So, Abe, why don't you start us off? How do you go about doing this sort of thing and going about it? Like, let's say, you know, like my first RCQ, Modern, July 2nd. How would you go about looking at that sort of thing if that was you right now? I'd look at the format, look at the decks that I I want to play, which is kind of influenced by how I feel about the format at large, right? Like, I would probably personally, a little biased because Modern, but I'd play Hammer because I feel very comfortable with the deck. I'd pick something that I feel like I can play proficiently, and then I would build my deck to make sure it has answers to the things I think would show up. I think if you're starting from a way further back place than me, something that I always try to remember is something that Paul Rietzel said once on Twitter that has really stuck with me, which is, if you're looking for a good deck to be playing in a format as big as modern, you should look at what all of the decks are trying to do, what the common thread is with them, and then try to do something that does not interact on that axis. Like, figure out what the games are about, and then move your game plan somewhere. It's kind of like why Big Man is good against, uh, like, Tron is good when four colors are right? People are about the battlefield, the small advantages. Tron is going to invalidate that by being like, I'm going to play a Karn. It's going to be faster than you can deal with, and I'm going to get you. I think about that a lot. Looking at where things are, and then thinking about the place that I want to be attacking things from a new angle. And then I'd go from there and work through decks that I enjoy, decks that I think are strong, decks that I think attack the other piece of information in the metagame going on, right, that have favorable matchups and what I expect to be popular. Struggling at how I was going to tackle this point in the podcast, I think I'm just going to do it from the perspective of what I think the average listener and the average Magic player actually has happen. Because what actually ends up happening, I think, a lot of the time is a player's like, hey, what deck should I pick for this season? And they have a deck that they play. And maybe that deck has access to, like, some pivots. You know, like, if you have four colors, Elementals is, like, really close and vice versa. But for the most part, they're trying to pick a deck. So I go about it if I was in that position of, like, Kind of like what Abe said, like, hey, what's going on? Yada, yada, all that sort of stuff. Echo that. And then where do I want to be if I have to play this deck, let's say, 10 times over the course of this three-month period? Is this a thing I'd be wanting to play? Do I think it has enough game? And do I think it's resilient to, like, changes in a metagame? And I think that sort of stuff is super important if, like, card availability is a big issue, which I think this is for a lot of people. And for the newer formats, it's actually a much huger problem because of the pandemic. And then the thing that I think personally that also doesn't apply to that so much is what deck do I think will give me the highest chance to win? Whether that's true or not, like it's kind of like we mentioned earlier in the show, the process of going through everything, figuring it out, and then picking the stuff and picking my spots sideboard-wise and tech card-wise to win this battle. So like a good example of this might be Man, I really think the Elementals deck is strong. It has some good stuff going for it. But a lot of the reasons that it is strong is because it dodges a lot of the stuff. Attacks four colors that's really popular right now, like stuff like Living End. And then you get to play a bunch of Endurances. So I think for this weekend, I really like it a lot about four color uh, the Elemental four color deck. But I think I don't want to give up access to this counterspell part of my deck. And so instead, I'm going to play some more Endurances in my main deck and try and be like Elementals and that sort of thing. And like, kind of crib their style. And so figuring out where I want to be playing and like how I plan for games to end and how I plan for games to play out, I think is a big part of that. Since so what about you? The first one as I've already mentioned is I want to be able to beat aggro decks, especially like at the, the RCQ level, you're just going to run into some number of people for this. 
season, if you're listening to this, well, I think this is probably going to be a pretty good evergreen podcast. I think that for this season, Mono Blue Spirits might actually be the deck that I might think about making sure that I have some amount of game against, um, because it's both the cheapest deck and it's really, really strong. The next thing is I want to be having fun. Like, I personally just don't play good magic when I'm not having a good time. So I, that needs to, I, I need to enjoy the deck. I, next up is I need to have a belief in the matchup spread. I don't need to like know the exact matchup spread, but just have a belief in like how I believe and perceive the matchups to play out, and and have a belief in like okay I, I can accept this when I fill out my character sheet as as Abe said like I'm okay with this. Then I would ask myself a question of is the deck that I'm talking about is it just the best deck in the format and does that deck answer all of these questions? Because if it does, then now I need to ask myself like why not play that deck? And then there's like a couple other things. One, uh, can it play Scapeshifter or Primeval Titan? Two, does it have snakes in it? And if those are options, uh, that that could be another another ring in that. Do I get to register Stewie? <laughs> Stewie lit. Stewie. I think that's gonna do it for this week's episode, though. I think the thing to kind of get away from, to take away from all of this, is when you're picking a deck you should be thinking about why you're picking it if assuming the goal is to win the tournament. And you should be walking through that process and you're going to get the process wrong a lot of the time and you're going to end up in the wrong places. But you just keep doing the process and you will get better at it and you will learn things and you know, you'll slowly improve over time. You might quickly improve, but you just will improve and you'll get better and better at it. And it comes down a lot to like just making sure you're thinking about things and when you're thinking about them, are you taking actions that make logical sense and as a response to them that aren't overstepping and being these extreme reactionary things? And so uh, when it comes to picking a deck for the RCQ, think about all that kind of stuff. Try and break it down, like Abe said, into like this logical, this bit of information with this. I think they'll do this because of that. And then if you get it wrong for that weekend, that's cool. Run it back. And also... Like Spencer mentioned, one last fun important part is just because you won doesn't mean you got it wrong. You know, you might have like a really good deck where I've done a lot of the right things and you just hit the infect player. So, you know, we're ready for your ad nauseum deck. So that's going to be it for the main topic of this week's episode. If you want to support the show, like we mentioned, you go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. Uh, you get to ask a question like we're asked right now, but also you get to listen to the episodes be streamed live as a patron. We have some people in the chat right now including where this question uh, came from. And this week's question really geared towards Spencer and you talked about on the podcast uh, a little bit ago, which was, can you elaborate more on the difference between good quantitative goals and bad quantitative goals? And just in case a listener hadn't listened to that episode, Spencer, can you briefly talk about quantitative goals? This is in reference to something that I mentioned about what are called objectives and key results, where you create an objective that's qualitative, meaning that you can't measure it, and then you you attempt to measure it with quantitative key results. It's meaning that if these things are true, we can then say that we achieved this thing. I think that's a little bit different for what it's worth than having quantitative goals. For what it's worth, I don't actually like quantitative goals in Magic. I think they set you up for failure in a game with this much variance. I think we've actually done a podcast on measuring your goals before, and I would actually recommend listening to that episode. If you're looking to create goals that are measurable, that are quantitative. What I would suggest is instead create qualitative goals and then decide what 
your KPIs or whatever you want to call them are that if you meet a percentage of them that you can then say, you know, I, I achieved my goal. Well, hopefully that was good for you. But it, it has a strong opinion of this. Oh, I wanted him to answer it too. <laughs> you said it very well. I think that like when it comes to having good quantitative goals, it's just about tying it to something qualitative where you're like, I want to, if it's, I want to be a better magic player, right? Then you need to define what that means to you in this moment. If that's, I need to, for me or lately, it's been, I need to be honing in on my technical play. I want to make sure I'm not making these avoidable mistakes. I'm thinking things through. I'm taking X amount of time to make decisions. I'm doing things a way that's satisfactory to me, but I define that. And especially if you're going to focus on quantitative goals, make them things that are reasonable and attainable so that they're not so far out there that you're like, I need to play seven hours of Magic Online today, or I need to play until I get a 5-0 every day. And yeah, that's how that's... I'm going to get better. That is how you ruin your life. It's not a good way to do anything. Yeah. But a quantitative goal, for example, you could say, I want to listen to uh, to like three ep- podcast episodes a week about Magic specifically, because that's a goal that you have about improving at Magic, the larger qualitative goal. That's a good way to set good quantitative goals, ones that are attainable, reasonable with the rest of your life. They're measurable and, and achievable, and they're working towards this bigger goal because usually places where quantitative goals are good is like, I don't know, if I told myself I wanted to run a mile every day, I would just run until I ran a mile and I'd be done. I'd meet my goal. But usually when it comes to things that are more complicated, those goals are building blocks of building a foundation for a better and, and more complete goal. I also want to mention that I might have said them backwards and I do this for a literal living and I might have said them backwards still. So if it's confusing for you listening to this, you should definitely look up the difference between quantitative and qualitative, which is quantitative means you can quantify it and qualitative does not mean that. Quantitative, you can count it. Qualitative, is it good or bad? You can quantitate this segment over to the YouTube comment question because we always <laughs> do that next. Uh, this one is more of a comment, but it's okay because it praises me and that's good. This podcast deserves more attention. I hope you guys get it all. What a cool episode on Game Vision for, or from Game Vision. Uh, thank you. Episode 407, mm-hmm. Understanding Control Back. I put the episode in there for a reason. Wow. For a reason. I'm, I'm going to, you know, along this sort of thing, since it's all about praising me, uh, we unfortunately didn't have, we were supposed to have a guest on this week's episode. And I, when we got to pick index for an RCQ, I had this whole bit prepared of like, what's it like just to DM me to get the answer. And I don't get to run that bit. <laughs> so, oh. unfortunate. Oh, <laughs> Thanks, you, buddy. I just, I thought, you, baby. I thought it was go. really funny because uh, the guy who was coming on definitely just does DM me a lot for a deck list and goes, I 5 0 with it. I'm locking it in. I'm like, you probably shouldn't do that, but okay. <laughs> also, even if he does, he's just going to change it in like 45 yeah. seconds anyway. Well, that's going to do it for all of that. Make sure to check out the rest of the network. There is Common Knowledge, a popper podcast, all about that format. Can RCQs be popper? I don't actually know the answer to that question. That might be something to look into if you're an LGS owner. They cannot. They can be standard, pioneer, modern, and Well, still a moto challenge format. 3-3 gets you some E plus EV. That's 50%, baby. That's better than NFTs by a lot. 
you can also check out Drafting Archetypes. <laughs> this is a all-limited podcast by Sam Black on the network. What I love about Sam Black's podcast is that it has constant value that doesn't fluctuate with the market. Like cryptocurrencies. Make sure to like, subscribe, <laughs> leave a comment. <laughs> uh, if you're watching the video version of the podcast, you're having a great time right now. But make sure to leave those sort of things as a way to help support the show without having to give money. Uh, it means great. Even if your comment's bad, we do like to get feedback, whether it's good or bad, so we can always approve the show. Maybe you're like, wow, I really like it when Mason just daggers the cryptocurrency people. And then maybe you're like, wow, Mason doesn't understand that diamond hands ever sell. And with that, I say, Abe, where can someone find you on social media? <laughs> they can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. It's where I put all of my thoughts. And also where you can DM me for coaching with the Hammer Time Modern Deck. Given me on Twitter, it's Spencer13H. Uh, hopefully, you will soon be able to find my other podcast, Need to Nerd. We're in conversations of finding a way to bring that back. You can also uh, find me on twitch.tv slash media to watch me stream Magic or Lego Star Wars. Thinking of doing like a Red Dead stream here, as well as the the uh, Constructor Criticism and Heezy Media YouTube channels. And hopefully soon... You can find me on Medify. That was sick. Coaching. Well, if we're all promoting coaching here, I'm co- promoting mine. At Twitter.com for at Mason E. Clark underscore. I actually probably still pop up if you just put Mason E. Clark. But I'm the underscore one. Papa Musk put me in the doghouse forever. I'm never coming back. Uh, I need some clout and some followers. But um, jokes aside, you can check me out here every week. You can check out my articles at Clark Kingdom. And uh, I do offer coaching as well. So reach out. I kind of cover all things. I actually had a session yesterday where I was working with uh, a lady who was wanting to do this exact thing, actually, with help figuring out like a deck to play RCQ season, specifically for like Pioneer, because a lot of Pioneer events coming up, and also kind of wanting to, along that same vein, get more entrenched in the format. And I think we had a really good session with all that. And we're actually doing part two of it tomorrow. So if you want to do that, feel free to reach out. And... We'll see you all next week for another episode of Constructed Chrism.